Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. What do you do after you've made the worst mistake of your life? Author Stephen Pyle has written a series of books chronicling people's failures. Have you ever seen those YouTube videos that are a collection of people's epic fails before? Yeah. Before there was a YouTube, there was Stephen Pyle. His books are filled with people's worst moments, right? Like there's, there's Harvey Gartley, who became the first boxer to ever score a knockout on himself. He was 47 seconds into the bout when he swung and he missed his opponent so badly that he hit his own jaw hard enough to render himself unconscious. <laughs> and then there's Betty Tudor, who despite 273 lessons, remember that number, 273 lessons and 19 years of trying, was unable to obtain a driver's license. Her last exam ended with her examiner screaming at her to pull over because she was going the wrong way round a roundabout. <laughs> but perhaps the most tragic story in all of these books comes from South London about a lady who called the fire department to help rescue her cat from a tree. The fire department came and they quickly lowered the cat to her and she was so grateful she invited them all into her house for tea. They had her tea, they received another round of thanks, they got into their truck, waved goodbye, but as they were pulling out of her driveway, you know what's coming, right? As they were pulling out of her driveway, they ran over her cat. <laughs> oh, we laugh, but the truth is not all failure is funny, especially to those who commit them. Some failures, can be deeply painful, so painful that we sometimes wonder if what we've broken can ever be restored. Have you ever failed like that before? King David did. Throughout this prayer conference, we've been studying Psalm 51. It's a prayer that David wrote at one of the worst periods of his life. If you've missed the previous two messages, I encourage you to go online to our website, to our YouTube channel, and watch them because they form the foundation for what we're talking about today. But as a recap, King David, King David made a terrible choice and then compounded it by trying to hide it, right? He forced himself onto Bathsheba, and then he murdered her husband in order to try to hide his crime. His, her husband actually 
ended up being one of his most dedicated soldiers, and he murdered him to hide his crime. Now, sometimes when we tell this story, we, we soften it a little bit, right, to make it a little bit more palatable for us. I remember the first time I preached on this passage, I used ramen as a euphemism for what David did to Bathsheba, you know, that David and Bathsheba ate ramen together. <laughs> Why ramen? Because it's hot and spicy. You eat it late at night, and you regret it the next morning, right? <laughs> they had ramen together. And it was a little funny, but it tended to blunt the sheer evil of what David did. He forced himself onto Bathsheba. Now, we can argue whether Bathsheba wanted to sleep with him or not, but the truth is, what she wanted was irrelevant. He was king, and when the king said, come, you came. So he used his power and influence to force something from her that he coveted. That's why the author doesn't describe what she was thinking, because it didn't matter what she was thinking. She was an object that he used to satisfy his desires. This was a horrendous abuse of power by a man whom God had called to lead his people. I mean, David had done some bad things in his life, but this, this had to be the worst. So what do you do after you've made the worst mistake of your life? The beauty of Psalm 51 is that it gives us a glimpse into the heart of David. And it outlines for us what David did. As Pastor Anita powerfully preached on Thursday night, the first thing David does when confronted with his sin is he, he turns to God. See, he realizes this, this mess is too big for him to clean up himself. So the only way out is by looking up. So he embraces, embraces the faithful, said love of Jesus. And then he confesses his sins. As Pastor Josh shared last night, he takes the time to look inward, to understand the brokenness inside him, to own it, ask for forgiveness, and then healing. So David looks upward for help and then looks inward for healing. And then what does he do next? Well, that's found in verse 7. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Psalm chapter 51. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 12. 7 through 12. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You know, as I read these verses, I am struck by David's confidence in God's ability to restore. I mean, he had really messed up his life. He had lied, he had raped, he had murdered. And then he tried to hide it all up. And it took a prophet coming to finally get him to confront his sins. And when he did confront his sins, it nearly broke him. I mean, listen to how he describes coming face to face with his sins for the first time. In verse 8, he writes, Let the bones you have crushed. So he's saying, God, when you force me to come face to face with my sin, 
When I felt the full realization of what I did, it felt like my bones were being crushed. Have you ever had your bones crushed before? Not broken, not fractured, crushed. Like a two-ton truck runs over your foot, crushes your toes. Like a sledgehammer coming, slamming down onto your hand, crushes your fingers. I mean, just thinking about it makes us wince inside, right? Because it's excruciating. It's so bad that we even have a term for it, bone-crushing pain. And that's how David describes the experience of realizing the full weight of the terrible things that he had done. Felt like his bones were being crushed. And yet, despite that, what is the very next word that he writes? What's the very next word he writes in verse 8? Let the bones you have crushed, what? Rejoice. Rejoice. How could he rejoice? How could he rejoice when his bones are being crushed? How could he rejoice when he is overwhelmed by the weight of his sin? How can he rejoice when shame covers everything that he has done? How? Because despite how far he had fallen, despite everything he had done, David still believed that God could restore. That God could take the stain of his sin, cleanse it, and make him new. That's why he writes in verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Listen to that confidence. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Have you ever had a stain that wouldn't come out? Like, no matter how many times you washed it, it just remained. So when I was single and living on my own, I wasn't the greatest at washing my clothes. I didn't always follow best practices when it came to laundry. I remember one time I I dropped some food on my shirt and I thought, it's just a food stain, no big deal. But then I forgot about it. And it sat in my hamper for weeks. I learned the hard way that, that stains come out easier the earlier they're treated. Actually, sins are the same way. The longer they sat, the harder they are to remove. So that, that shirt sat at the bottom of my hamper for weeks. So by the time I finally took it out to wash it, I had forgotten all about that stain. So I didn't pre-treat it. I just threw it into cold water, washed it, threw it into the dryer to dry it, which, I'm told, which I was told later was not a great idea to do with a stain that hadn't completely come out yet. But I didn't know anything about washing clothes. So when I got my shirt out of the laundry, I was shocked to see that the stain was still there. I mean, what's the point of a washing machine if it doesn't wash your clothes, right? And so I washed it again and again and again. I must have washed and dried that shirt four times. It started out as my black polo. It ended up as my gray polo and it was still stained. Have you ever had a stain like that? One that wouldn't come out no matter how many times you washed it? Have you ever had a sin like that? 
when that wouldn't come out no matter how many times you confessed it. We try and try to overcome it. But eventually we start to lose faith that it'll ever come out. We lose faith in ourselves. Sometimes we even lose faith in others. Like, do you know someone that you've kind of given up on? Like, every time you see them, you think to yourself, that's just the way they are. They're never going to change. John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, writes about a man that everyone had given up on. And this is how he describes him. See if this sounds familiar at all. Hank, as we'll call him, was a cranky guy. He did not smile easily, and when he did, the smile often had a cruel edge to it, coming at someone else's expense. He had a knack for discovering islands of bad news in oceans of happiness. Do you know someone like that? He would always find a cloud where others saw a silver lining. Hank rarely affirmed anyone. In fact, he operated on the assumption that if you gave someone a compliment, they would have a swelled head. So he self-appointed himself to the chair of the Church Cranial Downsizing Committee. <laughs> have you ever known a Hank? Have you ever been a Hank? The sad thing is, despite the fact that Hank regularly attended church, his sin was still destroying his life. John continues, his children didn't know him. Hank could not effectively love his wife or his children or people outside his family. He was easily irritated. He had little use for the poor. He critiqued and judged and complained, and his soul got a little smaller each year. And then I want you to hear this. This is John Ortberg's assessment about Hank. Hank was not changing. He was once a cranky young guy, and he grew up to be a cranky old man. But even more troubling than his lack of change was the fact that nobody was surprised by it. Wow. So the truth is, we often don't expect change. We don't expect that God will be able to take a cranky, cynical, mean-spirited old man and transform him into a gentle, kind, humble servant of God. We don't expect it. We don't expect it for others, and we certainly don't expect it for ourselves. We expect to make the same mistakes over and over and over again and never change. And that's what's so surprising about David's confidence, his confidence in God's ability to restore. After all that he had done, after how far he had fallen, he still believed that God could restore that God could make his crushed bones sing. How? How is restoration possible? Well, this is how David describes it in, in his prayer. Verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, I'm going to get a little technical here for a moment, so try to stay with me, okay? David here is referencing the ceremonial system, right? He's saying, create in me a pure heart, a clean heart. He's referencing the ceremonial system throughout this passage. God gave the ceremonial system to the Israelites, and it communicated that God not only forgives us of our past, but also provides freedom for our future. 
So there were some ceremonies, some rituals that dealt with the forgiveness of sins. But there were other rituals that dealt with ceremonial uncleanliness. So what was that? Well, somebody became ritually impure when they came in contact with, with death. Like if somebody touched a corpse, they would become ritually impure, and they would have to go through a process of purification. And that process of purification, it wasn't pointing forward to the work that Jesus would do in forgiving our sins. It was looking forward to the work that Jesus would do to restore our lives. See, all these rituals had to do with, with uh, they were associated with the giving and restoring of life, of reversing the effects of sin, of making us alive again, not just physically, but mentally, spiritually, emotionally, relationally alive. So when David writes, create in me a pure heart, O God, he's asking God to reverse the destruction caused by sin and to restore to him the life that God always planned for him to have. And for us, that process begins when we repent and we begin our, our journey with God. It's kind of like a graph of our life, right? We start down here. But as we get, draw closer and closer to God, we grow. It loosens sin's hold over us, and we become healthier emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually healthier. We grow. But as often happens, sometimes we still indulge the sin that still lives inside of us. So just because we begin following God doesn't mean the sin automatically, immediately goes away. Sin is a lot like cancer in that way. Just because we begin treatment doesn't mean that the cancer is immediately eradicated. There are some good days, and there's some bad days, and there's some worse days. But when we repent, it reverses our fall and allows God to begin growing us again. See, that is the process of growth that God outlines here and that 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 that. David is calling God to do in his life. Now, let me be clear what I mean by repentance. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. It's like Pastor Josh shared last, last night. It starts with confessing our sins, owning our sins, taking the time to look inward, to see what's broken in there, that's causing us to make the same self-destructive choices over and over and over again. What is it? What is the fear that's driving this behavior? What is the broken love that's driving this behavior? What is it? It's taking the time to understand that and not just say, God, forgive me of my sins in general, but naming that sin and asking for God to heal it. So that's the first step, confessing our sins. The second step is to engage in practices that allow God to root out our sins. See, just like there's different treatments for different diseases, there's different practices that are helpful for different root sins. For example, if we struggle with pride, the, the, the practice of silence can be helpful. Staying Speaking less, the practice of silence is speaking less so that we can listen to God more. That's the practice of silence. 
It's avoiding having to interject in every single conversation to prove how smart we are, to try to manipulate people's expectations and picture of who we are, and instead, stepping back and just listening, listening to what other people are saying, listening to what God is saying and doing in that moment. That practice of silence can be powerful for those who struggle with pride. If we struggle with control, the practice of prayer can be powerful. Prayer at its core is an act of surrender. That's why we sometimes bend our knees and bow our heads when we pray, right? I love how author Scott Kermode describes it. He says, prayer is entrusting to God the things that I would rather control myself. Isn't that powerful? Prayer is entrusting to God the things I would rather control myself. So if we pray in a way to try to manipulate God and get God to do what we want, we're doing it wrong. Because prayer at its core is an act of surrender. See, different practices that deal with different root sins and allow God to remove those sins from our lives. And the good news is, if we repent, if we confess our sins, and we engage in these practices, God can restore any of us. He can restore all of us. That's the good news. The challenge is that that process, it's not easy. Because our life graph often resembles a frustrating zigzag more than it does a straight line of growth. And that's why God gives to us this community of faith that we call church to encourage us when we are discouraged, to weep with us when we are grieving, to pick us up when we have fallen. See, the role of the church is not simply to preach the gospel, but to believe in it, to believe in its power to transform lives. I love how author Danny Silk in his book, Unpunishable, describes this. He says that the mission of the church, the mission of the church is to make Jesus' love believable. To make Jesus' love believable. To not just say things that are, are, are lovely. Not, because Jesus' love, it's this, his, uh, has, has said his, his covenant love is just so, it sounds so nice, but so impossible. But we as the people of God have the privilege of actually making that believable to live it out in our lives. I love how Pastor Danny Silk describes this in his book. He says the church that is going to make Jesus' love believable is not just a church that moves in signs and wonders and bold gospel preaching and care for the poor. All those things are important. But the church that is going to make Jesus' love believable is the church that has truly become a family. In a family, our mistakes and messes do not disqualify us from belonging. They expose just how deeply we belong. Wow. I love that. Our mistakes do not disqualify us from belonging. They expose how deeply we belong. See, as the family of God, we have the privilege of making Jesus' love believable to a world that's literally dying to experience it. 
Some of you may be familiar with Father Gregory Boyle, who founded Homeboy Industries. Anybody here been to Homeboy Industries in East L.A.? see a few of you. It's an amazing place. Father Boyle is most famous for his work restoring gang members. And he, he began a bakery called Homeboy Bakery because he found out that a lot of former gang members were having difficulty finding a job. So he wanted to give them an alternative to working on the streets. And so Homeboy Bakery was born. And in his book, Tattoos on the Heart, he describes the impact that this, this ministry had on one particular former gang member, Luis. So I'd like to read an excerpt from his book for you. The passage is a little long, but it's worth listening to this story of Luis in Father Boyle's own words. He writes, The original bakery was hugely famous from its first week. News crews would visit almost daily. Articles were written with photos of enemies working alongside one another. Tour groups came from all over the world. Busloads of Japanese tourists dropped by. Even Prince Charles, actually, now it's King Charles, right? King Charles' business advisor swooped down on us. Pip-pip cheerio meets the homies. Our foreman at the time was a man named Luis in his mid-20s, who arguably had been among the biggest and savviest drug dealers our community had ever known. We knew each other more, for, for more than a decade, and, at, and any offer of a job was always graciously, but surely, declined. But when his daughter Tiffany was born, things changed. He wanted to work at the bakery, and his natural leadership abilities soon moved him up to foreman. Not only did he work with former rivals, he also supervised them, which is a great deal more difficult. One day, we received an odd request from a tour from, for a tour from farmers from the Central Valley of California. It's part of Luis's job to greet the busloads and the film crews. He hates this part of his job, and his whining can make your teeth ache. <laughs> Later in the day, I visit the bakery several blocks from my office. Seeing Luis triggers the memory of his earlier tour. Oye, I ask him, how'd the tour go? Gee, he shakes his head. What's up with white people anyway? I was actually curious as to what was up with us. I don't know. What is up with us? I mean, he says, they always be using the word great. We do? Oh, yeah, watch it. This bunch of gabachos stroll in here and see the place, and it's all firme and, and clean and machines working proper, and they say, this place is great. And then they see the homies, tu sabes, enemies working together, all firme, and they say, you fellas are great. Then they taste our bread, and they go, this bread is great. I mean, gee, why white people always be using the word great? I tell them, I don't know, but trust me, every opportunity I could find after that, I tell him how great he is, just to mess with him a little. Some four months later, it's nearly closing time, and I arrive at the bakery in the evening. Luis sees me in the parking lot from inside the building and rushes outside. He's excited, and yet enthusiasm is not ever the card with which Luis leads. He's too cool for that. He barely lets me get out of my car. Hey, gee, he says, thrilled to see me. You're not going to believe what happened to me yesterday after my shift. 
He proceeds to tell me that after work, he goes to pick up his four-year-old daughter, Tiffany, at the babysitter's. He puts her in the car, and they drive to their tiny apartment where, for the first time, Louise is paying rent with honestly earned, clean money. He unlocks the front door, and Tiffany scurries in down the hallway and lands in their modest sala. She plants her feet in the living room, extends her arms, takes in the whole room with her eyes, and she declares with an untethered smile, this is great. <laughs> he turns to me and says, I thought she was turning white on me. <laughs> he tells me that he lowers himself to her eye level, placing his hands on his knees for support. What's great, Mia? And Tiffany clutches her heart and gushes. My home. Louis seems to be unable to speak at exactly this moment. Our eyes find each other, and our souls well up along with our eyes. We can't stop staring at each other, and tears make their way south on our faces. After what seems like longer than I'm sure it was, I break the silence. I point at him. You did this. You've never had a home in your life. Now you have one. You did this. You were the biggest drug dealer in town, and you stopped and baked bread instead. You did this. You've never had a father in your life, and now you are one. And I hate to have to tell you, but you are great. <laughs> this story, like so many in Father Boyle's book, doesn't have the happiest of endings. Because sometime later, Louise is shot and killed while loading up his car to go camping with friends. Wasn't doing anything wrong. Just wrong place, wrong time. And Father Boyle recounts that the first time he told this story, Louise's story, was at his funeral to family and friends who were all asking the same question. What's the point of doing good? if you end up like this. And this was Father Boyle's response. It was a good question, worthy of a response. I told that packed church that Louise was a human being who had come to know the truth about himself and liked what he found there. Julian of Norwich, a 14th century female English mystic, saw the life struggle as coming to discover that we are clothed in God's goodness. This became Louise's life work. He embraced this goodness, his greatness, and nothing was the same again. And really, what is death compared to knowing that? No bullet can pierce it. Do you remember Hank from earlier in the message? The cranky old man who never changed. I can't help but compare Hank and Louise, two men, both broken by sin, but one experienced restoration because he had someone in his life who made Jesus' love believable for him. See, this, 
this is the high calling that we as a church are called to, to make Jesus' love believable, to, to encourage when people are discouraged, to pick up when people are fallen, to weep when people are grieving, to not just preach the gospel, but to believe in its power to transform lives. So never, never stop believing, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God can restore. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.